This afternoon we'll be, look, we'll be reading Lord's Day 11 of the Hadwar Catechism, which speaks of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And in connection with that, we'll read from Colossians 1, the verses 9 to 23. Paul has just addressed the the Christians in Colossae and he has praised them for the faith that they have and the grace that he has heard that is abounding among them. And he also prays for them that they may continue to grow. And here he continues speaking about them and the growth and the prayer that he has for them. And we'll be focusing on the work of Christ as is explained in this text. So in Colossians 1, verse 9, Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that what you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So far, a reading of God's word. This afternoon, our text comes from Scripture as it is summarized in the the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll be reading Lord's Day... 11, Lord's Day 11 brings us to the second part of dealing with the Apostles' Creed, which is concerning God the Son and our redemption. And there in Lord's Day 11, the Hadabur Catechism asks, Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior, Because he saves us from all our sins, 
and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. After the sermon, we'll sing from him 28 stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? You might receive different answers depending on who you ask. Jesus is perhaps a familiar name, but many people might be unclear as to who he actually is. Most people will know that Jesus was a man. They might even know that he lived 2,000 years ago in what would be modern-day Israel. Perhaps they even know that Jesus said some wise things and they could perhaps mention the golden rule or something about loving your enemies. And they might even know about the death that he died. There might be some that know quite a lot about Jesus and others that do not know hardly anything or have only a vague idea. And similarly, you can ask a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness and you again get different answers. Jehovah's Witness might say that uh, Jesus is a really good man with a special bond with God or an angel. And the Muslim might say that Jesus is a prophet. Now our text this afternoon, the Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 11, has the advantage that it speaks to people that profess their faith and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. But the question then still is, of course, the same. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe in him? Why do you believe in him? And this is an important question. If we don't know who he is, how can we believe in him? And if we do not rightly know who he is, how would we know how we should feel about belonging to him? What should we feel about believing in him and entrusting our lives to him? And this draws out the weightiness of the matter. To believe in Jesus Christ implies that we entrust ourselves to him. We believe that our life is not our own, but it belongs to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we don't know who this is, you don't know how to feel about belonging to him. And you don't know if you're actually safe with him. But if we do know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have every reason to believe in him and to follow him and to feel safe believing in him. And therefore this afternoon we will study who Jesus Christ is again, so that we'll be reminded of who Je- whom Jesus is and why we believe in him. And the focus will be, be on Jesus as our Savior. And we see that Jesus saves us from our sins, and therefore we believe in him. First of all, as our Savior, second, as our only Savior, and then lastly, as our complete Savior. So first, we believe in him as our Savior. Now the Catechism has moved on from discussing God the Father and our creation to the second person of the Trinity, to God the Son and our redemption. 
And as it goes through the Apostles' Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism meticulously discusses every aspect of Christ's life, as it is mentioned in the Creed, and it begins with the name, Jesus. Now, it might seem perhaps a little odd that the Catechism focuses just on Jesus. I mean, names are perhaps still important today, but they most likely don't give away what kind of person we are. We might have a very interesting name, or the meaning of the name might be interesting, and yet we can be completely different people from what our name actually means. So why is it important that we know why Jesus was called Jesus? Does it matter for our faith? And if we, know, if we want to know why the name is important, we have to look at the birth of Christ. For in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, we read that it was not Joseph or Mary that got to pick the name Jesus. They are both told to do so by an angel. It is God himself who chose this name for his son. And therefore, the name has to be something important. And Matthew gives us the explanation that is given to, Mo- uh, to Joseph. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream, assuring him that he should take Mary as his wife. And in Matthew 1, verse 21, he is told that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And why? For he will save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning, God calls this child Jesus because he is the Savior, because he saves. And the name itself means something like the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. But the name is not just a name. It's a promise. And there were probably a lot of, there were a lot of children that might have been born and that were then called Jesus by their parents. But for Joseph and Mary, it was different. When they named their son Jesus, they believed the promise of the Lord. That indeed this child was going to save his people from their sins. And we see that elsewhere in scripture, that when God names or renames someone, there is a certain expectation or anticipation of what he's going to do. When Abraham in Genesis 17 was named Abraham, which means father of a multitude, Abraham is 99 years old and he's only the father of Ishmael. And there we wonder if God will really make Abraham to be a father of a multitude. Will God, who renamed Abraham, also make him into a great nation? And so this child, Jesus, will he truly be the savior of God's people? Will he live up to his name? That is the question. And in the Gospels, indeed, we see explained how Jesus lived and how he died and how he was raised to be the savior of his people. And so Jesus is the savior And the Catechism follows the clarification that the angel gives by explaining that Jesus is our Savior because he saves us from our sins. And this is important also to focus on this. What are we saved from? And it's sin. Sin is identified as the heart of the problem. And we can look at the world around us, or we can perhaps look at our own lives, and we can see that there are difficulties there, perhaps problems, difficult circumstances. Maybe we would like to be saved from difficult saved from difficult people, or we would like to be saved from our marriage, or we would like to be saved from this broken human body. If we could just if someone could just help us get out of these problems and we could list them, then we would be saved, we could say. But the fact is that even if we're saved from all these problems, all these things that we can list, the real problem is not solved. All of these problems are just telling us that there is a greater problem, and it is sin. 
Changing your circumstances or hoping to be rescued from them is not going to solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem that is in each one of us. The problem is not out there, but it is in here, in our sinful hearts. And the brokenness of this world just shows that. We all are sinners, and we are all slaves to sin. And that means that we are by nature under God's wrath. And that is just the heart of the problem as Scripture identifies it. It is us, sinners. But Jesus is our Savior, it says. He saves us from sin. In Him we have forgiveness of sins, and God's wrath is satisfied. But then the question, of course, is who does He save? For who is this forgiveness? And the answer, of course, has been clear from the beginning of the Catechism, especially uh, Lord's Day 7, that Jesus saves those who believe in Him. And notice also how the personal or how the catechism is actually personal here. It speaks of God the Son and our redemption. And Jesus saves us from our sins. And so also in Matthew 1, verse 21, it speaks of Jesus saving his people from their sins. It is not just sin in general that is being dealt with, sin as its great problem and abstract. No, it is our sin, and it is our problem in our lives that we are talking about. And that Jesus saves. And there can be so many people in the world that can admire Jesus for what he has said. They might even admire him for a sacrificial death. Because they can admire a savior or a wise person. I mean, anyone can admire the good qualities we see in a savior or a savior figure. And perhaps it's no wonder that there isn't also so many movies that feature superheroes and savior figures. Because, well, we can, we can admire them and we can cheer them on. But there is a huge difference between admiring and honoring someone as a Savior and as your Savior. To make that clear, we can just think of the fact that last year, 2015, marked the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. And now for years, Canadian veterans that have fought in World War II have been flown back to the Netherlands and other parts of Europe to commemorate this fact, this liberation. And the veterans are always struck by the response of the Dutch. For here there are people that even 70 years after the fact, they still organize well-attended parades. And they welcome and thank these heroes. These men might be appreciated for their service in Canada, but it's nothing like the gratitude they receive when they go to Holland and other places of Europe. And why would that be? It's because these men liberated the Netherlands. They are the heroes of the Dutch. Call them the saviors of the Dutch. The the Dutch just naturally show their joy and gratitude for the sacrifice of these men. Even after so many years. So let us also realize this key difference and respond accordingly. Jesus is not just a savior. He is our savior. He came to save God's people, us, from God's wrath. And because of him, we know that there is salvation for us. But there is salvation from the brokenness of this world. We know that it is for us who believe in him. Now the Catechism also points out a second reason why the Son of God is called Jesus. And namely, he is our only Savior. As it says, And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. He is the only one. The only one who can actually be called our Savior. And this leads also to the next question. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, 
or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus. Now, the Catechism realized that we do not readily and easily seek our salvation and our well-being in Jesus Christ. In most cases, we're, we're hesitant to trust one Savior or to put our eggs in one basket. We might have backup plans, some kind of insurance that gives us some extra sense of security or well-being. In most cases in life, we're right to do certain things like that. I mean, we can do that perhaps with our files on the computer. We save them, and we also make sure that we back them up. But what about our salvation? Do we need some kind of backup plan there? No, not if we need to trust in Christ alone. And so the Catechism is aware, actually, even that some people might boast with words that Jesus is their Savior, and perhaps their only Savior, but they don't show it in their actions or in their deeds. Or at least they deny that He is their only Savior. They have other Saviors besides Christ for extra security. And so it recognizes that we might believe in Jesus Christ, their Savior, but in our struggle with unbelief, we will doubt that believing in Him is actually enough. Instead, we decide to establish our own salvation and our own well-being. And we can do that in a number of different ways. And the Catechism gives us specific examples. We can trust in saints, or perhaps in ourselves, or perhaps in anything else, really. And when the Catechism mentions the practice of worshipping saints, it's of course referring to the practice, the Roman Catholic practice of praying and worshipping saints, which was common around the Reformation. It might be hard for us to exactly understand how this works and how this gives us salvation or extra sense of security. But I think we can at least all understand the idea of extra security here. And when you think salvation has to be earned or it has to be earned by doing good works, it would easy to seem easy at least to turn to the experts, to those who have gone before us, who perhaps can give us tips and help us out. The, the saints have already been through it all, so it's easy to turn to them, hoping that they will save you. But it also points out another way that we can seek our salvation, and that is by seeking it in ourselves. And there are many ways that we can do this, and they all end up leaving our only Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are a number of factors that can play a role when we actually seek our salvation in ourselves. And we can look at least at two this afternoon with perhaps deception and control. First, we can deceive ourselves when it comes to our salvation. In life, we perhaps naturally depend on ourselves. So we might think that also in our salvation, we should depend and trust ourselves. And so we will think that we have our problems under control. Perhaps we don't see that we need help. We who have fallen in sin, we might be so blind that we do not realize how great God's wrath against sin actually is. Or we think that we are good enough to be our own saviors. And a biblical example of this kind of thinking is found in the New Testament in the behavior of the Pharisees. I mean, just as Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, because he says, they're nice, they're white on the outside, clean, but they're dead on the inside. And yet, as long as the Pharisees thought that the outside was all that mattered, they didn't realize that they needed a Savior. But that's not what Christ taught them. He showed them that dealing with sin is not a matter of putting on a great facade or a great act, 
But it is a fact. But it requires a Savior who can work in our hearts, who can clean our hearts and renew them. And so we should not deceive ourselves when we think we can deal with sin, even without completely depending on Jesus Christ, our Savior. And for others, we might find that it's an issue of control. Perhaps we don't deceive ourselves. We recognize we have a problem, and that perhaps a great problem with sin, so we realize we need a Savior. But that Savior needs to do it the way we want him to do it. We want to be in control of our well-being and salvation. We want to set the terms of how, this, how he helps us. And perhaps the thinking can go like, sure, God can help me, but he has to do it as I would like it. We want to have a say in how we are going to be saved. We want to feel as like we have a handle on our salvation, something to control and influence and to contribute. And for that matter, it's not strange that already in the early church, Paul has to warn the Galatians about their salvation. The Galatians didn't get rid of Christ completely. No, they still believed in Christ. But they wanted to add some controllable elements, like circumcision, to their salvation. They wanted to do something, have something to contribute to their salvation. But Paul tells them, in no uncertain terms, in Galatians 5, verse 2 to 4, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, that if you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And Paul just says, there are two options. You can believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and accept all that he has done. Or you have to do it all on your own. You can't say, yes, I want to live by grace on my bad days, on the days when I need help. But I want to depend on good behavior and my good seasons of life during the rest of the time. Or God, just save me from these weaknesses and we can mention them, perhaps these sins. For the rest, I'll take care of my life and I'll determine what I do. Our salvation is not a matter of splitting the efforts or saying that Christ ends something, but it is a complete matter of complete trust in our Savior. Anyone who tries to work out their salvation is also left to work out their salvation by themselves. And lastly, the Catechism asks about seeking our salvation anywhere else. And the fact is that if, if Jesus is our only Savior, then anything else goes. Nothing else is needed, and the point has been made. Jesus is the only one who can set us free from our sin. And as we read also in Colossians 1, verse 13 to 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation is not up to us, and it is not found anywhere else. It is not up to us to be moved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. These verses specify that we need to be delivered and transferred by God himself. And it is only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is in him that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is our only savior. And because we believe this, that Jesus is our only savior, and unless we believe this, that Jesus is our only savior, we fail to believe in Christ. There is no halfway in that regard. Jesus is our complete savior, or is our only savior, and no other. Now, if we tend to doubt that Jesus is our only savior, or that 
we tend to doubt that Jesus really completed all of our salvation for us. Well, if we have these doubts, we can battle them by thinking about the sufficiency or the complete work of Christ. And that brings us to our last point, that we believe that Jesus is our complete Savior. If we believe that Jesus is our only Savior, then he also has to be our complete Savior. Otherwise, we're still not saved. And therefore, the Catechism gives us two options, and Jesus is either one or he's the other. He is either not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Our salvation is not up to... or Sorry. We have these two options. And Christ is either not a complete Savior, in which case we should be looking for other saviors, or we should find all that we need in Him. And then the question is, where do we seek our feeling of safety or security? What makes us feel safe in this world? Is it in Jesus exclusively because He's our complete Savior? Or do we seek it in anything beside him? And a good gauge of this is asking yourself, when do you feel sure of your salvation? Now, it's fair, feelings can be deceiving. But if we only feel safe and certain in particular circumstances, perhaps when we, we are feeling good about ourselves, when we think we have done it well, when we have done well that we have it made, if it's found in such feelings, then there's a good chance that we're seeking our salvation in those circumstances and not in Christ. Because Christ is consistently and all continually our only and complete Savior. And we do not need other circumstances or any other saviors to supplement our salvation. And against these doubts and against these feelings of uncertainty, Scripture shows us all that Jesus has done so that we might begin to understand the completeness of this salvation and rest secure in it. In the passage we read from Colossians 1, Christ is exalted as the one that might be preeminent in everything. Our Savior is truly God, the fullness of God dwelling in Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things in this world hold together because of Him, so that when He came to save us and pay for us by His blood, he could truly reconcile all things on heaven on earth to himself. God sent him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, th- on heaven or on earth. And it is through him that even we have the hope that we spoke of this morning, the hope that is from beginning to end. And throughout the verses in Colossians and throughout Scripture, we read that every, just, every verse just points to Christ as the one that's most glorious, the most glorious Savior who even sits on the throne right now. There is forgiveness of sins and and redemption for those in His kingdom. And through His blood, we have peace with God. And as head over the church, Christ will continue His work and in the end will present all believers holy and blameless before the Lord. Who else would be able to bring His church home to Himself? Who else would be able to be our complete Savior if it's not the one who has complete authority and all power right now. 
And so we're back to the question we had at the introduction. Who is Jesus? We all have some idea of who Christ is, but our idea can influence how much we trust our Savior. And anyone will have a hard time trusting Him, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as their only Savior, if they don't realize that He is also our complete Savior. It would be foolish to depend on someone for something we don't think He can accomplish, and especially when it comes to saving our lives. In the case of a life-threatening disease, you, might, you will find the best doctor, one who you think will be able to do the job well and treat the disease as good as possible. And so we need a Savior that we can trust with our whole life. And in order to counter any doubt we might have of our Savior, we need to continually look to Jesus Christ and also see how He is our complete Savior. So what is it that you seek and you cannot find in Christ. Well, John Calvin wrote a paragraph in his Institutes asking that question, and he went through all of Christ's life, just showing how he is our complete Savior. And I paraphrase here what he has. He wonders, do you seek a Savior who is gentle and humble, understanding your pain? Then look at Christ's birth and how he had mercy on all the people of Israel on the lost people of Israel? Are you looking for true redemption? That someone actually has paid for your sins that you have committed and for the, has paid for the pain that you have caused by your sins? Then look to Christ on the cross. Are you afraid of the condemnation that awaits you because you find yourself guilty of sins against the Most High? Then think of Christ who was condemned and executed in your place. If you wonder if anything will break the curse of the brokenness of this world and of our lives, then see Christ cursed, hanging on the cross, so that we might receive God's blessings. Is your conscience troubled by guilt? Guilt that perhaps sticks as a dirty stain? Then see Christ's blood, which washes whiter than snow. Or do you struggle against your sinful nature and wonder how you will ever get rid of all this indwelling sin? without giving up your life. Then see Christ, who was dead, but that wasn't the end. He was raised to a new life. Do you wonder if anything perhaps makes sense in this world? Do you feel lost and vulnerable? Then look to our Savior, the Good Shepherd, who also right now sits in heaven, having been given all power and authority to protect and gather His people. Look at Christ and what He has done and is doing. Look at him particularly when we un- fail to understand the greatness of the salvation that he has accomplished for us. And therefore read scripture and look to Christ and see what he has done and trust in him as our only and complete savior. He has finished it all for us. And do not depend on anything else because by doing so you reject the work of Christ. He saves us from our sins. That's exactly what he came to do when he came to earth. Nothing else is needed because he is our complete savior from beginning to end. He truly is Jesus, the Lord saves. He is our only savior and all that we need for our well-being and salvation. Amen.